We are in the heart of Paul unpacking in ever greater degrees what he's been saying throughout the book. And this is the section that we've uh, recognized or, 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 or uh, designated as new creation. There is new covenant and new creation that God has taken his covenant with Israel, expanded it the way he always promised he would to the Gentiles. And the implication of that is not just a new covenant with the whole world, which is the, the further growth of his initial covenant, but it's also the restoration of creation itself. There is new creation inherent. What we're about to read this, uh, this morning about creation groaning is not sort of an odd uh, parenthesis but is the logical outworking of everything Paul's been saying about the dynamic way in which God's work in and through the world, through Jesus Christ, in establishing, reestablishing, clarifying through the victory of Jesus on the cross and in the resurrection, the reestablishment of creation's original order. It is an ongoing process. What we know about God certainly is that He is a God of process that He does things in a series of steps, that He delights to bring us along with Him, that He doesn't seem to be in an unnecessary hurry. And so may the Lord bless the reading of His Word and His preaching this morning with perhaps uh, a little bit of less of a sense of hurry. We'll put uh, verses 18 through 25 in front of us. Hear now God's Word. For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to compare with the glory that is to be revealed in us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subject to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who are the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies." For in the hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. But who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Lord, thank you for these words. Thank you for the promise. Thank you for the hope. And we ask this morning that we would rest in the hope of your kingdom come, your will be done. And Lord, we ask that we would be pleasantly surprised, miraculously surprised. Lord, may our hope be bigger than we can possibly imagine. Protect us, Lord, this morning from hopes that we can almost see, from limiting who and what you are. And we ask, Lord, that whatever is said that limits your people's hope, would those words quickly be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. 
We, uh, we can ask ourselves the question as we head into this, going sort of backwards uh, from the text, as I'm fond of often doing, what do you hope for? What on earth is Paul on about? As you internalize this idea of hope, what is that hope? Uh, to what degree can you begin to picture it? Now, I'm not suggesting that we shouldn't use our imaginations or that there's anything inherently wrong with that unless we think that that imagination and those ideas are sufficient to express the hope as God will reveal in His fulfillment of everything that needs to be done in the wisdom and the power and the restoration that God brings. Because we can take from God's people in the first century the warnings about limiting our hope. We have often talked about, and I'm sure you've read many books and articles and heard sermons about, this challenge that God's people, the Israelites, were largely seeing the Messiah coming as being a throwing off of the Roman yoke and maybe a return to, but even better than, the days of the... um, when the Jews were free and went, oh, of course, the name escapes me as soon as I start preaching the sermon. The Maccabees, because that was the reference to the tanners running out of oil. It's not important now. But they would look back on those days when the Maccabees, for the better part of a hundred years, in the midst of all of the, uh, the political turmoil, were able to have and carve out a time of freedom for the Jewish people. They looked back, we know, in their books and in their writings and in their prayers to those moments with the Maccabees and looked forward to a day when a Messiah would again physically save them from their oppressors. And their hope was of that kind of Messiah, which meant that their hope made it hard for them to see the Jesus that actually came. The more they imposed their hope on God's plan, the harder and harder it was for them to see the fulfillment of God's plan in the hope that was far bigger than they could possibly imagine. The hope of salvation was a transformation of the human heart. The problem was deeper than any of them could have imagined. So it was no less than the fact that, of course, the Romans would have to be overthrown at some point. All evil governments, all places where oppression and power are used to crush the, uh, those under their authority, all of that's going to have to be undone, and eventually the Romans were. But the power of sin and death, those things are simply tools. The Romans were tools of sin and death. And the bigger question was, how are sin and death going to be dealt with so that creation and humanity can all live again under the right reign and rule of God in peace and shalom? How on earth are all of these things going to be set right? And they were going to be set right in a way that was surprising, in a way that was more profound, in a way that addressed the problem even more deeply. And so I want to suggest that the challenge of Romans 8, much like some of the quotes on the front of the worship folder, is that we can have hopes that are too small. We can redefine the gospel in light of the time and place in which we live so that we imagine things to be simply a hope that we can see, or a hope that we can at least get the outline of, or a hope that maybe causes us to miss the power and the profound nature of God's redemption. It's better to assume 
that we, like the children of Israel, will reconstruct the hope in a way that fits our time and our moment and that might increase the likelihood that we miss the hope that Paul is talking about. That's how God begins to work. When I realize my hope is probably too small or a little askew, the more likely we are to see the hope, or at least the promise of the hope, that God brings and recognize it when it comes. So, for our time this morning, let us look at Romans 8, 18 through 25 and reflect on new creation, new vision, and new hope. We are, in chapter 8 and in this section, unpacking what Paul has already said in Romans 5. That idea, that reality of justification is being unpacked. We have this glory that is being revealed. We have this power that's coming from the Holy Spirit that is renewing us from the inside out. There's a hope even of our bodies being renewed, which is again, promise of new creation. It is all heading in a direction of life, and it's heading in a life uh, that is going to be transformative. And that's going to be prepared for the returning of the king whenever that time may be. And what we realize is in the midst of that, that we are going to, as we read last week and as we talked about, suffer. That this old world is not going to go quietly. That it seeks very much to exert its power and to work as uncreation against God and His purposes. And that seeing that Work undone means suffering. If it meant suffering for Christ, Paul says, then it's going to mean suffering for us as we follow Christ. This isn't, again, an attempt to glorify suffering or to suggest that we should all gleefully go try and seek to add suffering to our life. What we know is that life itself, as we walk along the path and follow Christ, will have days when there is suffering in front of us. And the question is whether we avoid that suffering one way or another, either by turning and running the other way, or trying to find a different path, or doing anything we can to avoid the suffering that is in front of us. All that Paul is talking about is how because of who we are in Christ and because of the amazing gifts that we have been given, he can consider the suffering that is in front of us nothing in comparison to the glory that is being made true in and through us and will be ours. The ability to, in an unfettered way, reflect the glory of God and in sometimes our radiance and our countenance literally shine with the glory of God himself to reflect that glory back to the world, to reflect it to one another. That ability in our actions and in our words and in our very countenance. Paul says that the suffering that we find ourselves engaged in is nothing in comparison. That doesn't mean that he doesn't think that suffering is weighty. He doesn't mean that he thinks suffering is insignificant. It doesn't mean that he thinks that material suffering is unimportant because he's transcended into some spiritual realm. 
What he's saying is it's worth it. What he's saying is it is work worth doing. It is a burden worth carrying. It is not unimportant. It is not pointless. It is worth doing. New creation comes through the pains of childbirth. Now, of course, you know where we're going. How can we not go back to Genesis 3 when we have so much Genesis 3 imagery in Romans 8? It's about creation being restored. What happened to creation? Well, in Genesis 3, because of our rebellion, creation could no longer serve us the way it was designed to. And all of the hope and all of the glory of God's created children reflecting His glory by interacting with creation and setting creation free. Isn't that interesting? Again, in our time, and only a small excursus, but as much as we need to engage with what it means to be right stewards of creation and correct the flawed notions about what it means to be stewards or to bend creation to our will, what we know is that humans and creation were supposed to reflect the glory of God together and that creation finds its identity and freedom in working with us, not against us. And that doesn't mean that we treat creation poorly. And it doesn't mean that when we read passages like, you shall have dominion over it, that we read that in light of the post-fall reality of human ability and willingness to abuse creation. Rather, we read it in the hope of what it means as those redeemed in Christ to restore, to renew, and to work alongside creation. And that reality is coming true this side of glory. Uh, You know that I'm often uh, tempted to talk about things that are happening good in the world as proof that God's kingdom is working, particularly in the short time since the resurrection. 2,000 years is not a whole lot of time in relationship to the recorded history of humanity. And in 2,000 years to see what we've done in response to new creation or as a part of new creation needs to be celebrated. Some of you know that I've been suggesting that you watch this uh, wonderful video about uh, the challenges we face environmentally and the opportunities we face uh, because of human ingenuity working alongside of creation. And I think I've told most of you folks one way or another that the, uh, the Dutch, not surprisingly, right, Mr. Nasky? The Dutch have come up with a way to grow more crops in the smallest part of land in Europe more than anybody else in Europe. And in fact, they're now like the second largest exporter of fruits and vegetables in the EU. They sell tomatoes to Italy. Now, that shouldn't really be happening. A place where they have to literally rescue their land from the sea, where land is at a premium, but because of what they've done with greenhouses and a moderate use of water and different agents in which to grow things, they are able to produce more crops that you and I can actually eat per acre than any place in the world. 
And so as we look at human beings, and this is so important for our time and our place because God loves people. He created them in his image. And death would like us so much to think that people are a net draw on creation. That somehow creation was never designed to sustain this many people. And that what we need to do is have less people to give creation a break. That can't be true. People are net producers because they reflect the glory of God. They create. We are not net consumers. Does temptation and sin seek for us to be lazy? Are there ways in which that can be true? To be sure. But creation was meant to work with us to show the glory of God. And the glory of God is a God who brings life in and through this world. And a a presupposition that suggests that the answer to the problems of nature and humanity is to have fewer people runs contrary to the fundamental ethics and understanding of Scripture itself because we are net producers. And we need to see it as Christians in that way. And that when faced with the challenges of the joy of more people, that we have to find new ways that creation will work with us to provide food and to provide joy and outdoor experience and 15 other things that are a part of what it means to be people enjoying creation, then we know that creation groans with us to make it so. That it delights to work alongside us and that it wants to be freed because when it works with us, it's at liberty. That's what Paul is saying. That's the power of new creation is that the war between humanity and nature, or at least nature's requirement to not easily work with us, is being reversed post-resurrection. Will it completely be done this side of glory? No. But that's where we're headed. That's why creation is mentioned, because at the fall... Something happened. And that God has been promising ever since that the pains of childbirth would be worth it. That new creation and rebirth, though it comes through pain and suffering, will be worth it. In fact, the pain is nothing in comparison to the glory. And the only hope I have of that is the fact that mothers do not hate their children their entire lives after whatever happens during their birth. Somehow, miraculously, mothers are able to forget the four hours or three hours or longer and just hold that child and love them instantly because at that moment they know that it was worth it. That doesn't mean they liked it. That doesn't mean that they would make it worse or longer or anything else silly about that suffering. But in the midst of that, what they know after they hold their child is that it was worth it. And if that's true, as we delight in holding our newest covenant child in our arms, How much more so when God restores all of creation and all of his children 
to their right, reborn, renewed selves. Jesus thought it was worth it to go to the cross for you and me. That's the context that Paul can even begin to say his own suffering for ministry and what he was encouraging God's people to do in Rome, it's worth doing. And it will be worth it when he comes and shows us when it's all born and all complete. In that context, we will be able to say it was worth it. In fact, I can't even really remember the suffering in light of the glory in which we now stand. Genesis 3 runs all the way through this passage. Paul is picking up the image of creation being restored after a long subject to decay. And that it is the joy again of birth, the promise of new life, which has been all the way through the book of Romans because we have been reborn Paul has told us, and we've been renewed, and that we are not in the old, but in the new. And it is all of this imagery that begins to change our vision. Because according to verse 23, we are the first fruits. We're not waiting for something to happen different than spring, heading into summer. We are in that process of seeing the first shoots. It's the beauty of Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe and the breaking of the power of winter and the beginning of spring that runs through the entire theme of that book. We are the first fruits. God's people in and through His creation are those first fruits. But we know that even as the first fruits, that doesn't make it easy. Which is why Paul continues to say that the Spirit is the one who gives us the ability to continue to lean into what it means to be born, what it means to give birth, because at any given moment, we're doing both. At any given moment, we are in the process of becoming, as we are born anew, And in the same way, we suffer one another and it feels like we are the ones giving birth. We are the ones whose suffering is enabling the next new thing to happen. Someone to be loved and cared for who was seen as being unlovely and unworthy and yet they don't treat us with the hope and joy that we would like. Or whatever ways in which suffering for the other manifests itself in your life. And in the midst of that, you feel the burden and the weight. But the Spirit groans with us. Inwardly, we are waiting eagerly for our adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. That doesn't mean that Paul has just said that now we're not sons and maybe if we suffer enough, we will become sons. It is this understanding that these things become more firm realities, more clearly seen, more powerfully motivating, more ever-present in our weight and our heart and our thoughts. And that our bodies themselves, far from being the shells we will happily abandon as we flitter off into some post-material existence, our bodies themselves are being renewed. Now that strikes me as odd 
since I'm going to turn 50 in a few weeks because it doesn't feel like it's being renewed. And yet, when I follow Christ, there is a way in which my body is learning things that it will delight to do in eternity. No, there won't be sin. No, there won't be death. But the idea that if I don't practice now following Jesus, it's going to automatically become easier in the new heavens and the new earth underestimates what it means to build habits that last for eternity. Will I feel better than people? Will I uh, be conscious of any sense of pride or arrogance? No, but what I know is that God can renew my body and my heart and my mind now and that that isn't somehow erased at the resurrection. That there's an intimacy with God that you can build now that carries into eternity. There are ways in which you can deny yourself certain things now that you don't have to. Intimacy with God. Presence, walking with the Lord. Leaning in and sharing in the suffering. Following Jesus. We can put all those things off until the new heavens and the new earth and Jesus' return. But I wouldn't recommend it, and why would you? Why would we put off now the ways in which we can be renewed in our minds and our bodies until the return? We are being renewed even now. This creates a new hope, a hope we cannot see. It's no longer small enough for us to see. It's too big. It's too grand. I have no idea what I'm hoping for. I know it will surprise me. I know that even what I'm saying now about walking with the Lord and the new heavens and the new earth and a creation that works alongside me as opposed to fighting against me and a way in which the Billions and billions and billions of saints that have gone on before and will join us for eternity will be sufficiently met in the midst of the creation renewed and restored and delight in it and work with it and create and build. And I can't imagine what that looks like. And anytime I do, chances are when I actually see it happening in the world around me, I'll miss it. If I constrain God to my understanding of what new creation looks like, I think I increase the likelihood that I will miss it when God does something surprising. When He changes the way I think creation should look, or the way I think my relationship with Him or with one another, with you, looks. What God values as important. Who God sees as being worth His effort and His love. In all of the ways that I can miss what God is doing. It happens over and over again in history. The Catholic Church misses the hope of the Reformation because it's confused politically and theologically. The rebirth and renewal of the church is missed by so many in the church because it didn't look like what they expected it to look like. It was offensive to them in one way or another. 
And we can go through other examples in the history of the church where God begins to do something wonderful and miraculous and most of us miss it because it doesn't fit our cultural or social or preconceived hopes and notions. The hope will not fail us. But like we learned in Romans 5, it will come through suffering which produces perseverance, which produces character and patience and a hope that does not disappoint. If we as believers find ourselves regularly avoiding suffering, avoiding those things which are unpleasant in this world in our own hearts or in the world around us, the more likely we are to miss the character-shaping reality that builds our patience, that builds a true sense of hope, a hope in something that we can imagine but not see, we can trust in but not construct. What will be and is becoming even now, in the midst of a pandemic, in the midst of great transitions, in the midst of things where we cannot see what happens next, we have a hope more glorious than we can possibly imagine, a hope that is worth the patience. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, be merciful. Lord, we know that you grieve because of suffering. You came to put an end to suffering. And you have called us to be a part of that plan. We ask that we would, as your children, continue to find projects like Ethnos and Fish and Love Inc., Safe Families, Lord, in just the way in which we learn one another's lives and bear one another's burdens, that your people would know the freedom that comes. And Lord, that we might groan with creation, with the Spirit, in the pains and yet hope of what it is to see new creation come. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.